So if you remember from the opening talk, <clears throat> we were saying that the instructions in the morning and the meetings in the groups and in the one-to-one interviews were very much uh, intended to meet you where you are and address what's happening for you in the moment and um, the, the way of work, the ways of working with that, of responding to that, of holding that well, meeting it well and skillfully. <clears throat> and with the evening talks, or, or some of the evening talks, uh, that we're looking at bigger picture perspectives and questions and ideas, in fact. And sometimes at first, with this bigger picture level of things, one can tend to think, well, that's pretty abstract. It doesn't have much to do with... Uh, this, what I'm dealing with right now in front of my nose. Um, But as we said a couple of nights ago, that's actually not the case. And the big picture perspective uh, has a lot of impact on what happens uh, in the moment, in my experience, what unfolds and where that goes. And tonight I'd like to in a way, pick up a thread that was in the talk from a couple of nights ago and pursue it a little bit further, explore it a little bit further, which is mysticism and the nature of reality and the nature of perception. And one could go about that kind of a talk in a certain kind of way. I could, I could do, for instance... Uh, read a lot of poems by Rumi and Hafiz and, um, but I'm not going to do that uh, rather I would actually just like to reflect on the whole area a little bit offer some reflections and hopefully um, bring a little bit of insight into the whole question here questions here so if one looks up mysticism in a dictionary Uh, This is what I found in the dictionary I have upstairs. Uh, Three definitions. One, belief in or experience of a reality surpassing normal normal human understanding, going beyond normal human understanding or experience, especially a reality perceived as essential to the nature of life. And two, kind of coming out of that, a system of contemplation, contemplative spirituality aimed at achieving direct intuitive experience of the divine or of this uh, nature of things. Then there's a third definition, which is obscure or confused belief or thought. (laughs) Part, I think, of the big confusion around the whole debate around mysticism is that people conflate these meanings. They actually conflate the first two with, with, with the third, and it all gets mixed up. And one assumes that it's all, it's all one thing, and they not keep them separate. And sometimes people say mystical, and you actually hear their meaning as a kind of insult, but also because they're mixing that third meaning with the first two. So that's quite important. To... Now, when we talk about human experience, uh, and, and meditative experience, and spiritual experience, the range of mystical experiences is enormous, and just enormous, and just, you know, as a teacher, it's such a privilege uh, hearing uh, from so many people, of course, in, in, in practice. And uh, the range is enormous, you know, from such things as, as visions of divine beings, etc., um, to things like extrasensory perception and precognition and synchronicity and all that. And what's more common in these kind of circles with these kind of practices that we do is 
things along the lines of a sense of oneness, oneness, a sense of uh, all things being of one nature, that kind of thing. Um, Or it could just have the flavor of a sense of deep connection, something like that. In the Christian mystical tradition, they talk about the via negativa, the the negative road or the way of uh, negation. And what that really means is a way of meditative or spiritual experience opening out, uh, unfolding, that is an emptying out of the, the sense of self and the uh, an experience as well, gradually or, or suddenly, but usually gradually. In other words, the usual sense of self that we had of, of solidity, of separateness, of substantiality here, and the usual sense of complexity and substantiality and separateness and diversity in the world of things, that begins emptying out and kind of fading and dissolving. And that... Uh, avenue of unfoldment of mystical perception is uh, what we call the via negativa and brings with it what's sometimes called negative theology. In other words, God or ultimate truth is, is more of a negation. It's more of a, it's not this, it's not that. It's not, that you can't point to it. So there's a kind of letting go of this, letting go of that, letting go, progressive and deeper and deeper letting go. They say in the, in the Hindu tradition, neti, neti, not this, not this, not this. Whatever it is, it's not this, it's not this. And there's this letting go, letting go of everything, moving uh, in this via negativa, emptying out the experience. And, uh, and then there's many mystical experiences and practices that, that melt uh, both via positiva in terms of positive visions and experiences of this or that with the via negativa. So for example... Uh, Mother Teresa, if you know, had this practice of seeing all beings as Christ. And what's going on? What does she mean when she says, I try and see all beings as Christ? Or in some um, Buddhist traditions, to see the Buddha nature of all beings. What does that mean? There's actually in there a, a marriage, if you like, of this via positive and via negative. But anyway, the range is enormous. And we could ask... What's all, what, what of all this range of different mystical experiences, what do they have in common? What do they have in common? One piece, I think, is sanctification. Sanctif- they have in common a sanctification of something, or of existence, of life. So do you know what I mean when I say that? I mean making something holy. That... Uh, Mystical experiences, or these kind of experiences, tend to give a sense of holiness to existence or things. There's a sense of um, the blessedness of things somehow being uh, made apparent, being revealed. And this urge or movement towards sanctifying that's, I think that's an irrepressible human urge. It's, it's recurrent in human history. You can't stamp it out. There's something deep in us that has this urge to sanctify or re-sanctify existence. Um, so you get, for example, the Christian Eucharist, where they're taking the, the body and the blood of Christ. It's, it's, the purpose is to sanctify. Sanctify 
otherwise normal humdrum physical existence and perceive a deeper sense in it, a deeper uh, texture, um, reality, if you like. And in the Jewish tradition, where, where you have what's called mitzvot, you, you, uh, and you say blessings, one is, by saying a blessing, one is actually blessing this thing or that thing, one's blessing life. And through my blessing life, life appears to me blessed. This movement uh, is, is so strong, this urge is so strong, so deep in human beings. Now in a culture that's become, certainly in England uh, and, and a lot of Europe, etc., and many parts of the world, not really rooted in religious sense, um, art, as it has for a long time anyway, um, art sometimes takes the place of what sanctifies, what blesses, what points to the sanctification. So sometimes we read poems in here. And the reason it's touching, and so much modern poetry, is about sanctifying things, about showing the, 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 the beauty and the holiness of things somehow. But it could be music, and with the music that we're playing, or uh, literature, or whatever. Now it's curious, if you look at the Pali Canon, which we've referred to several times, the original teachings of the Buddha, and if you approach that with as free a perspective as possible, what you find there is almost a complete absence of the sanctification of life. It's, very, it's a very, if you read it just as it is, there's a real sense there of wanting to kind of almost get rid of life, of life being something that's just there to be gotten beyond, to be transcended, getting off the wheel of samsara, of, of rebirth, of life and death. This is, a, this is a problem and something we don't really want. We want to transcend it and go beyond to nirvana. That's, that's, and it takes a lot of work, which kind of modern interpretations of the Dharma, we bring a very different sense and so we try and read it through different lenses. But the honest truth is, is, is that's... that's it's not really there. We're reading something else into it. And then it's interesting in the Buddhist tradition, if you know, some years went by and then you get the tantric tradition growing up, which is very mystical and sort of attempts to change, uh, not change, transform and deepen and open the perception we have of everyday life to make it divine. That's what the practice of tantra is. So that, it's almost like it couldn't help but come back in. All that's by the by historically, but I think interesting. What happens to us as human beings, and how easy it is for us as human beings to lose touch with this, uh, this sanctity of existence, the sanctity of things and, uh, and life and death. Uh, so easy to lose touch with that. Uh, and it's easy to blame uh, teachings of transcendence or teachings of emptiness, but that's really, I think, not to understand those teachings. Because deep, deep uh, understanding, penetration of, of transcendent teachings, deep understanding of emptiness brings a sanctity. It implies a sanctity in things. Now, modern, modern interpretations of mindfulness as well, and, and they vary, and you get different traditions in Zen and all that, and it's too complex to go into here, but very often in the sense of uh, modern interpretation of Dharma is like a sense of this is it, this experience, this right now, this is it, this is reality, this moment, this feeling, this, this sight, this sound, and can you be as close as you can to that because this is it. That 
as an emphasis is very interesting because it could go both ways. There can be, in the sense of this is it, the holiness of this. And there can also be the kind of meaninglessness of it, the, um, the unholiness in a way. So what does it involve, what does it include to sanctify life? What, what does that mean for us in our lives, in our practice? Um, it, I think it includes, just reflecting a little bit, I'm only touching on such a huge subject, I'm only touching on a few things here, but respect, sanctifying, sanctification has to do also with respect, deep respect for existence. And sometimes it's so easy to pass through life between birth and between death and the decades and the years go by. And, and one almost is not in touch with a, a, a possible profound respect for existence. So easy to get caught up in this or that or this problem or that or the self-view or whatever it is. And all this marvel of existence, it goes without deep respect. And the word respect, you, you may know from uh, uh, the Latin specere, if I'm pronouncing it right, to look again, specere, like spectacles, specere, and the re, again, to look again, to look again, to look deeper, to look more penetratingly. And in a way, that's exactly what meditation and the practice we're doing is about. Can I look closer, more deeply, more truly, you could say, at, at existence and, and experience and what presents itself. So respect comes, it will come from looking more deeply. The more deeply we penetrate with our gaze, the more respect comes. And perhaps sanctification also includes reverence. And again, that's also from Latin. Verere means to, uh, to be in awe of. So to be in awe of, to, to be uh, yeah, in awe of once more, once more to be in awe of, of this, uh, this magic show, this existence. There's a Scottish poet, uh, Ian Crichton-Smith, he died some years ago, I think, <clears throat> um, and he's uh, reflecting on seeing a person who is a uh, homeless person, who's moved to the city and been stripped of most of her anchor points and and he tries to see deeply and see the sacred in the person. Seeing beyond just the appearance. Sometimes when I walk the streets of Glasgow, I see an old woman passing by, bowed down with shopping bags, and I ask myself, what force made this woman what she is? What is her history? And he reflects, it is the holiness of the person we have lost, the holiness of life itself, the inexplicable mystery and wonder of it, its strangeness, its tenderness. So so easily something goes out of our vision, something escapes us and becomes inaccessible and we get used to that. We get used to that. And we take that absence as a reality. So questions, always questions, always questions. When there's an observation, there's questions. How? How is it that this reverence gets blocked? What blocks it? What blocks my heart from the sense of reverence? And the answers are many, many and complex. It's not, that's not an easy question at all for us. If the inner critic comes in, 
and gets hold of that question, forget it because it blocks the question. I can't ask questions like that when the inner critic is in control. It's just impossible. It's completely impossible. Somehow, and Chris talked about this the first night, somehow we have to find a way of disempowering this inner critic to be able to ask deep questions in life. Without that, I can't. But what am I absorbing? What am I taking in from my environment that's perhaps blocking reverence and respect? What am I doing that might block it? What am I not doing that might block it? What ideas am I uh, uh, entertaining in my mind, consciously or unconsciously, that might prevent this? These are big questions, I think. Is it possible to reawaken this sense of sanctity, this sense of the holiness of life, the holiness of existence? Is it possible to reawaken that and keep that aflame? And it's one of those things that if I don't tend to this flame, it goes out. It will go out. Without, without caring for that flame, it will go out. I have to tend it. I have to nourish it. So what, what can help? Um, gratitude and appreciation are hugely key as, as movements towards and also results of sanctification. The more I can feed gratitude and appreciation, the more it's just a little step movement towards a sense of sanctification in life. Um, David Orr is a, an American environmentalist and <clears throat> actually an environmental educator and he said, gratitude is the single most important quality needed to address climate change. So that's what's missing. Only in such a spirit can we be freed from the loveless illusion of independence and discover the sustaining truth of interdependence. There was a very famous rabbi in, uh, I think he lived in America in the 20th century, Jewish rabbi, uh, called Abraham Heschel. And he said, as civilization advances, the sense of wonder almost necessarily declines. Almost necessarily. It's not necessary, but it's almost necessarily declines. Humankind will not perish for want of information, but only for want of appreciation. So, as I said right at the beginning, these questions are not abstract. They alter the very fabric of our sense of things. And in so doing, our choices, our behavior, and the fabric of society, etc., all the rest of it. As we've been into several times on this retreat. The more gratitude and appreciation, the more it feeds sanctification. And the more sanctification, the more it feeds gratitude and appreciation. They're mutually supportive. As is wonder, as as, said. Uh, and this physicist that I referred to the other night, John Wheeler, who I think is 100 years old this year, uh, he talks about the deep, happy mysteries and the joy of contemplating these deep, happy mysteries of existence. And he also said, basically, physicists are basic, or research physicists at least, are basically essentially people who wonder at the universe, who are full of wonder at the universe. And that's interesting because they're wondering rationally about how it all works. But with wonder, it also involves a kind of non-rational element and in this intuitive sense of awe that the rational mind is, is something else in the being is being touched, non-rational. And in a way, an understanding is happening through the intuition and not the rational, both. So, 
There is, what's, again, this is all, what, what do these mystical experiences have in common? They have sanctification in common. And they also have something else in common, a second factor, which I would say is perceiving and understanding in ways that, A, call into question conventional appearances, perceptions, and understandings. And secondly, and this is also really important, um, bring with them a sense of freedom, of increased freedom, usually of less sense of self, of the self being less central, solid, important, kind of dense, substantial, less separation, oftentimes uh, more, more love, oftentimes more love. So there are changes in perception and understanding that bring with them that whole movement of, of the way that the perception unfolds. Do you understand? <laughs> yeah? Um, so one thing that mystical experiences have in common is the sense of making things holy. The second thing they have in common is they bring about, or they, they are, changes in perception and understanding of, of reality, you could say, of what's real. And those changes in perception and understanding, they call into question conventional, taken-for-granted perceptions and appearances and understandings. And they also have in common that there's a sense of less solidity to the self, less reality to the self, less separateness, less, um, uh, well, more, more freedom and more love. You understand? So that, that's what differentiates um, a, would say, mystical spiritual experience from something like a, a tormenting uh, experience of insanity or something that's like that. There's not the freedom, etc. Okay, so far so good, hopefully. Um, what I've noticed uh, teaching uh, so, so much is that basically, very black and white, broadly speaking, there are two personality types and two inclinations. The mystics and the kind of, uh, what should we say, anti-mystics. <laughs> and this, this fascinates me, it absolutely fascinates me. So I was talking to, not too long ago with a personal retreat and he said, he'd listened to a talk on a tape, I can't remember what, and he said, you know, I, I don't like all this talk about flowers and moons and uh, it, it's all so, so feminine. And, and, and <laughs> but that's very, what was great was he was being honest and he was conscious of his tendency. That, that I really appreciated. And someone else said to me you know, a long time ago, you know, I had a Catholic upbringing, and so I, all this is very loaded for me. It wasn't, it wasn't easy, all that, and there's a kind of mistrust there from, from my upbringing. But again, he was aware of what he was bringing there. Oftentimes what I notice is people bring an incredible pre-decision to this whole, is it real, is it true, is it rubbish, is it da-da-da? And with such force, it's, it's uh, uh, really interesting, such force, it brings up so much, the whole question for people. Um, and oftentimes they're not even aware uh, that they're bringing a predecision or how much uh, energy there is bes- behind it. So I remember this a few years ago, um, two uh, practitioners that I know uh, who were really good friends heard a talk about um, what's called the unconditioned, which the Buddha referred to sometimes as saying, so everything is conditioned, uh, all physical phenomena, mental phenomena, they, 
they are conditioned and impermanent. They arise and they fade and they're dependent on other things. And then the Buddha talked about the unconditioned, the unfabricated. And now there's a big debate on, is that really what the Buddha said? What did he mean? Is it real? Etc. And these two practitioners, who were very good friends, got into this very heated argument about it. Um, and what was interesting was that neither of them at that point had anywhere near the meditative sort of depth or capability to, to answer the question for themselves. And yet... Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> so I, I started to cotton on to this slowly, and a couple of years ago, I can't remember when it was, I was teaching a, a much longer retreat, a month, and we were really getting into the, the deep end of things, and talking, got to the point where we were talking about the unfabricated, and I was giving a talk on it, and then I stopped at one point, and I said to them, now, I'm, I'm going to shut up for 30 seconds, and you have a think what you want me to say next. Do you want me to say it's real or not real? <laughs> it was fascinating. And I don't know if it was half and half, but there's a real split there. Uh, we need to be aware of this. We need to be aware of our preconceptions, predispositions, inclinations, personalities, because what, what happens, I see, is people predecide this whole question. With, with a lot of force. and uh. So this is interesting. And certainly, you know, you can see sometimes a person uh, clinging to kind of superstitious, you know, sort of quasi-mystical beliefs about things. It's, it's kind of coming out of fear and ungroundedness and wishful thinking and uh, sloppy thinking, all of that sometimes. But equally, you see the opposite. And a person says, the Buddha was not a mystic. The Buddha was not a mystic. But what... What kind of person says that? What's their background? And what kind of person likes to hear that? What kind of person wants, wants to hear that? There's oftentimes the people, just an observation, but oftentimes the people without mystical experiences that like to hear that the Buddha wasn't a mystic. Because it supports something. What's always important is integrity. Where am I leaning? What do I want? Really important. <clears throat> now sometimes... Uh, person will say who's leaning against mysticism that evidence against it uh, that they feel uh, that well it doesn't fit with our commonly agreed um, ex- experienced perceptions of the world that's not what everyone agrees on uh, for a start it's counterintuitive because the intuitive reality is what we perceive the sense I'm over here and you're over there and it's eight o'clock and etc and this is this is all real and, and that, that's what it is it's material reality unfolding um, as it does in, in a very um, agreed upon way you know, so anything mystic is unscientific but what's underpinning all that is a very we could say common sense modern uh, what I would call scientific materialist uh, view of things, understanding of things, uh, involving sensing and seeing the world as process. Uh, So we touched on this in, in, uh, was it the talk a couple of nights ago, that there's a sense of an objective reality of things. This microphone is objectively real, my emotion is objectively real, etc., etc. Time, as Newton would have said, exists independently, just goes by itself no matter what is happening. Space exists just by itself no matter what's in it. Well, this is the common sense, intuitive, scientific, materialist 
modern so-called modern understanding, the self, uh, a world of selves, a world of solid matter, all that, and we call that reality. We call that reality, and that's the kind of consensus reality, as someone referred to it. It's the consensus reality. But as we were talking a couple of nights ago, the penetration of modern physics is is showing that that's actually not as real as it seems to be at all, at all. So Neil Spohr, some of you will have heard of him, he was really at the center of the revolution in physics in the first, um, uh, the first half of, of the 20th century, really, uh, really at the center. And there was an instance where um, a colleague of his, um, called Harold Hufting, um, they were discussing an experiment and how to interpret it, and, and this uh, colleague, Harold Hofting, asked Bohr, or was speaking out loud, where can the photon, the particle of light, where can it be said to be? And Bohr, who was known as a really deep uh, philosophical thinker, uh, paced up and down, pondering, smoking his pipe, and said, to be, to be, what does it mean to be? He's asking very, very deep questions that came out of, out of the, uh, the experiments that they were looking at. So the very notion of being and existing that we assume, we intuit, it's intuitive notion of being, are actually questioned both by quantum mechanics and by emptiness, and the teaching of emptiness, which you touched on briefly this morning. And then there was another instance also with Bohr when another physicist, a famous physicist called Wolfgang Pauli, um, he came up with something called the exclusion principle. It's not important what it is. But he had this idea and he took it to Bohr. And then this is a report. What struck Bohr about Pauli's proposal was its, quote, complete insanity. <laughs> Bohr always condemned new proposals with the words, quote, interesting but not crazy enough. Saying that, saying that Pauli's theory was completely insane meant he thought it was, it was most probably right. <laughs> so there's something, as we penetrate, whether it's meditative, as we talked about this morning a little bit, whether it's meditative or whether it's in, in terms of modern physics, there's something counterintuitive about the nature of reality. It's not what it appears to be. It's not what it appears to be. Um, and again, John Wheeler, not machinery, but magic may be the treasure that is waiting. This uh, physicist whose career spans most of the 20th century into the 21st. Not machinery, but magic may be the treasure that is waiting. Um, so, this typical, what I'm calling scientific materialist sense of things, taken for granted, common sense, this idea of everything as process is not ultimately real. It can, it's real at one sense, obviously, but it's not ultimately real. The Dharma would make the distinction. Uh, according to the teachings of emptiness and deep Dharma teachings, or according to modern physics. Um, it's useful at a certain level. It's extremely useful. We need that. Of course we do. It's the level of conventional reality. It's also very helpful in understanding a lot of how we get into such a mess in life. Because I can see, this, because of this thought, there was this contraction, and then that contraction caused uh, this reactivity, and that reactivity caused this contraction, and then, and then I saw things this way, and then I said this, and now, what a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> There's a process going on, and it's helpful. That kind of linear process-oriented or understanding of things can be really helpful at a certain level. But it's only at a certain level. In a way, I'm 
invoking the authority of science to undermine a little bit some of this uh, intuitive understanding, misunderstanding, partial understanding. So also in the Dharma, and we talk, and you've probably heard if you've been around these kind of circles for a while, it's like we talk about being with things as they are. Things as they are. Have you heard this phrase ever? Being with things as they are. We talk about bare attention. That's B-A-R-E, not B-E-A-R. Um, bare attention. The idea that somehow I can make my, I can take everything uh, extraneous out of my attention, all the reactivity and all that, and somehow meet things nakedly as they are. I can be with what is, the what is. Um, all these uh, are, are, you know, I, I use them. It's like they're they're woven into the, how we teach the Dharma also, and very much woven into how we think of mindfulness and how we teach about mindfulness. So we talk about mindfulness as being with things as they are, or something like that. But actually. Actually, that's completely impossible. It's impossible to be with things as they are. Bare attention is an impossibility. It's just not possible. We've talked about this. Always the way of looking is, 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 uh, is changing something, is creating it. Part of what I see is dependent on the way of looking. In fact, all of what I see is dependent on the way of looking. What I see and, and, and my looking is... It's not two separate things. I can take this aside and I'm left with reality, so to speak. A bare reality. And sometimes people might, coming out of all that, again, and very understandably, trying to think, the goal of practice is being with things changing or being with the flow of things. There's just a flow of things. Um, and say nothing is permanent, everything is changing, our job is to be with that, let things change and be with that flow. Important and true at a certain level. Uh, but sometimes, sometimes a person with a predisposition to want to get rid of more mystical perceptions like God or soul or something might just be using that to dismiss Say there's no soul because there's nothing permanent. There's no God because there's nothing permanent. And what's left is, you know, one's challenged all the mystical perceptions, but left, not very, left unchallenged. One's left unchallenged is the consensual reality. Everything's just a process. One's missing out something there that actually... Change also is not ultimately real. Change also is not ultimately real. Impermanence also is not ultimately real. And right at the beginning of the Mahayana teachings in Buddhism, about a few hundred years after the Buddha died, uh, there was a great teacher called Nagarjuna. And he wrote a very seminal text. Sort of almost everyone in the Buddhist world uh, uh, reveres this text. And in the second chapter, he proves... Just actually, the whole idea of change and impermanence, it, it can't, doesn't really hold water as a concept. It seems so obvious, it doesn't really hold water. In the very beginning of the whole text, uh, anirodam, anupadam, anuchedam ashashvatam, means not ceasing. Without ce- all things are without ceasing, without arising, not destroyed, but not eternal. thing is, Things don't end, and they don't arise, but they're not eternal. 
That's the true nature of things, pointed to something very, very deep here. Impermanence is not an ultimate reality. The flow of things is not an ultimate reality. Now to say that things are not impermanent, we automatically think, well, they must be permanent, but they're not permanent either. Something completely radical and profound is being pointed to. So what assumptions am I bringing to all this as a human being, as a practitioner? The word religion is also from Latin. Religio means to, uh, we get our word like ligament from it, to, to tie something. So what am I, what view, what assumptions am I being tied to over and over? Whether it's about myself as we've been exploring assumptions about what this emotion means or whatever, or, or more pervasive assumptions about the nature of reality. So some people want to poo-poo religion but actually just tied religio over and over again to an unquestioned view of scientific materialism or consensus reality. So very common nowadays to say, the self is just a process. Everything is just a process. Actually, the Buddha never said that. He never said that. There's not one passage where he says the, self, the, the nature of the self is that it's a process. Well, the nature of all things is a process. It doesn't say that. Um, it's very popular as a notion nowadays, and sometimes it gets passed off as something that the Buddha said. But actually he never said that. It's popular par- partly because the consensus taken for granted view of the society right now is, is the Newtonian view of scientific materialism. And also we're big into computers, the age of computers, where everything is a process. So the whole idea of process just fits very nicely right into our, our usual way of understanding things. And it seems, oh, well, that's real, and I can understand that. In a way, it's too easy to say everything is a process. It's not that hard to see that everything is a process. I just need to look a little carefully. I start to see everything's a process. So in a way, it's, it's kind of obvious that everything is a process. I just need to look a bit. And when something's obvious, it might really need re-examining, because sometimes the obvious is exactly what's not true completely. It needs, it needs more penetrative looking. Now, a person might say, ah, yeah, but when people have mystical experiences, whatever they are, that whole range and religious and spiritual and meditative experience, they're always interpreting those mystical experiences depending on what religion they're from. Or, you know, Christian people tend to see Christ and da 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 and all all this, whatever. And that's absolutely true. It's true that that goes on to a large extent. But is it also true that we're actually interpreting ordinary experience all the time? We're always interpreting experience. And we're interpreting it where? Into the consensus view, into the unquestioned. And so oftentimes this consensus view is, is clung to despite modern physics saying this, despite sages and mystics, etc. saying whatever. There's something about more mystical experiences. If it's not so dogmatically clung to, whatever it is, an experience of oneness, let's say, or some of you, the space opens out and people have been reporting, the space opens out and it feels like there's love in it. It feels like it's infused with love. There's love everywhere. It's a very common mystical experience. And some of you have been reporting on this retreat or different variations on oneness. If I don't dogmatically cling to that, now that's my new view of reality and that's ultimately real, too tightly, it might 
I might need to cling to it a little bit, actually. But if I don't cling too tightly, there's a chance, there's a good chance that the mystical experience um, can unfold and evolve. It goes on a journey. It goes on a journey. Now, anyway, um, Buddhist understanding, Dharma understanding, it's not so much seeking experience. It's not so much seeking. What we are seeking is an understanding of uh, the nature of perception. I'll explain more what I mean uh, as, as we go on. It's not that we're chasing experience. We're understanding something about the nature of perception. We're on a journey to, to that understanding. That's different. Not chasing an experience. But that understanding of perception, of experience, brings freedom. That's what brings freedom, not a particular experience. So with all this, it's like we need a kind of intellectual and meditative um, depth and, and honesty and, and rigor, all of that. And it really needs to be there. So person, very, and again, I'm just talking about the anti-mystic side at the moment, but it's like, a person might say, all that mystical stuff, it's not real. It's not real, they say very common. It's not real. But, um, and then they might say, you know, what we want now is to let go of all that foreign stuff and the Eastern stuff and kind of um, let that go and be with things as they are. But that's assuming a num- couple of things. It's assuming uh, that quote I read to you the other day from... Uh, forgotten the name, but to live in the midst of an era is to be oblivious to its style. I say, I get rid of all this Eastern stuff, all those bodhisattvas and all this weird stuff, and, and what I'm coming back to is, is the culture, the, the view of the culture that I'm in, and I'm blind to it because I'm in it. It's the air I breathe. And to say the mystic isn't real has usually in it a kind of assumption that there's something else that is real and that's basically there is a basic reality uh, or the reality of scientific materialism or this what's called naive realism just things are as they appear to be now this is a little bit of a subtle point I want to get into maybe all that is completely missing the point maybe it's completely missing the point to say something like it's completely missing the point of what's going on completely sending the argument and the debate in the wrong direction and not helpful direction it, maybe it's not maybe I, it's not possible to get rid of a way of looking there are ways of looking there's always a way of looking at something I cannot be without a way of looking at something which we got also from the quantum stuff the other night and so there is no basic reality because I'm always looking in some way. I cannot perceive anything at all, no matter how simple, without a way of looking at it. So, hmm, what to do with that? Maybe, maybe the whole question, get the whole debate and the whole exploration and understanding gets transformed. And it's rather that we start to use ways of looking Different. So it, the whole question becomes pragmatic rather than reificationist. In other words, it becomes, what does this particular way of looking unfold in the being and for the heart and for the freedom and for the love and for the, what, or, or the release from suffering? Not, is this real or is that real? Do, do you understand the distinction? 
Different ways of looking bring different openings, bring different unfoldings, bring different perceptions and different possibilities. So in a way, maybe taking the whole thing much more lightly and much less literally is actually a much wiser thing to do. Even the scientific materials, you know, as I said before, it's very helpful. It's a, it's a certain perspective, the perspective of process. It gives uh, many things to the mind and many things to the heart which are very helpful. But so, for example, does, say, the perspectives of mystical tantra teachings where there are deities and bodhisattvas and uh, all that kind of stuff. That gives something else. It opens something else out. So some people nowadays are very interested in neurobiology and the interface between neuro, the biology of the, the nervous system and the brain and, and the interface of that with meditation and how meditation is affecting the brain, etc., which is great. And it's, it's uh, using the scientific materialist perspective and using it with the meditative understanding. Um, what excites me, I'm just sharing, you've probably guessed where my leanings are by this point, but... Um, what excites me more is, is uh, for instance, Schrodinger's wave equation, which what it is, is an, an equation describing the, the, the reality that you can't find anything anywhere. The reality that this so-called particle is, is really just a probability of existing somewhere. It exists in a kind of abstract mathematical space. It's pointing to some. To me, that speaks... Actually, I actually have it on my wall, if it, a little embarrassing, but, <laughs> but it really does speak to my heart. It's telling, it's reminding me something about the nature of reality. So is it necessary that I need to literally believe in this or that? Do I literally need to believe, is that what it's about? Or is it that we enter certain myths and certain ways of looking that we can use, we can go into, and that opens something? Um... So the scientific materialist notion of separate existence and process, that's a way of looking. It's really helpful. Oneness, oneness, the perception of oneness. Some of you have described as as the meditation opens at times as a sense of oneness in different ways. Oneness too is a way of looking. What is not a way of looking? What is not a way of looking? Is there anything that is not a way of looking? Is liberation a way of looking? To say something is a way of looking or only a way of looking is not to denigrate it because there's nothing else. It's not to denigrate it. It's to point to a magic. And say, way of looking is also a way of fabricating, way of... Uh, building something. So when, as we've touched, you can see this with the, the work we're doing with the emotions. I look at the emotion in a certain way with judgment, or like we said, can I just see it as perfect, or with, with you know, a lot of allowing, or with a lot of aversion. The way of looking is, is the way of fabricating. Dependent on how I look is, is what I build, and what gets built as an experience in that moment, as a reality for me. Do you understand? Ah. and maybe they're all useful. But having said that, we don't want to get lazy with this, so I need to actually use them. It's not like I'm just forgetting about the whole question of truth and all that, and it's just, yeah, yeah, everything's good. 
You can tell that's the case when there's no energy in in how a person is saying that. But if you pick this up, it's incredibly energizing. It brings this uh, quickness to 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 the consciousness and a sense of possibility and freedom. So we use all these ways of looking, including the interpretations. You can use them to lead, to unfold different things as stepping stones that move on. Um, not too long ago, a few months ago, I was in Paris and sitting in uh, Notre Dame Cathedral. Amazing, if you've ever been there, cathedral, absolutely beautiful. And interesting, very crowded, lots of people there. There was plenty of space to sit. And very m- mix of people in there. Some uh, just tourists, you know, whatever. And, um, and then some really devout Catholics who it was clearly a kind of pilgrimage to be there. And this place has such a history and such beauty to it. And, and in this real sense of the, the mythologizing that goes on that we do as human beings, the kind of fantasy of Christ and, and or the whole church and all this stuff, that makes things holy, going back to what we said at the beginning. It's a sanctification. This way of seeing, this whole thing that one enters into, it makes things holy. And I was sitting there and I was actually feeling this and wondering about it. And I had, had the sense also... You know, the very sort of mythologizing and entering into this whole, what's a construct in, in some senses, to say Christ, Jesus was the Son of God. What does it mean, you know? Um, that entering into and that mythologizing, that fantasizing, that is itself a kind of holy mystery of being. The fact of doing that, the doing of it is something holy. Not a mistake, it's something holy. It's something that being does, that being needs to do. Awareness, uh, it's what awareness does, you could say. It's what minds do. And the question is, which ones are we picking up and where are they leading us? Do you understand? That, to me, it felt holy. That very doing of that, rather than a problem or a craziness, it's holy. So the problem is actually entrenchment in a view. And maybe particularly entrenchment in the view of this is it, this meaningless reality of materiality and process and etc. That entrenchment in that may be a problem. And sometimes you look, let's take Buddhism, and you look at, um, say, the Mahayana teachings, and there's a lot of devotional practices. And some people, you know, it's tempting to look at that and think, all the teachings on emptiness and all that, that, that's really good, but all this devotion stuff, we can kind of you know, get rid of that because that's a bit of you know, soggy stuff that we don't really need. Um, but actually one begins to look, those, those teachings on devotion and that, those heart teachings and devotional practice, they're embedded in a whole kind of um, framework of other practices, uh, with compassion and um, ritual and... Uh, um, cultivation of concentration and other beautiful qualities of heart, loving kindness, generosity, equanimity, insight into emptiness. And all those practices work together in, excuse me, in a certain direction, synergistically, feeding off each other, supporting each other. They're interwoven and they're simultaneous. So rather than it's like devotional practice is kind of a baby, baby people. And when you're grown up, you can get onto the kind of emptiness thing or the real hardcore being with what is or or whatever if you're good (laughs) (laughs) 
we're misunderstanding something about what's actually going on there in the whole process. And if you look at who are the teachers who are, who are suggesting all these devotional practices, they're, they're not these kind of sentimentalist wishy-washy. They're really hardcore logicians and, and hardcore meditator adepts. You know? um, rigorous scholars. You know? uh, Nagarjuna, Chandrakirti, Shantideva. These are famous names in the Mahayana tradition. Vasubandhu. So it's tempting to think devotional practices, it's because a human being, we need to feel comforted. We need to feel that God loves us or there are Buddhas that are looking after us. And we have a, a frailty as human beings until we can kind of grow out of that and kind of you know, meet the grim reality of meaninglessness or, or whatever. Uh, we tend to think, we need this, so let's, let's give it to ourselves. It's okay, but it's not the real thing. But actually, they're part of this whole system of practices that are doing something together. And what that something is, is deconstructing reification. Meaning, uh, uh, unpicking this uh, taken-for-granted way of solidified perception that everyone believes in. All those practices together, that's where they're going, and that's their main purpose. And they have secondary purposes too, but that's their main purpose. The problem, in the Buddha's view, is that we believe something about reality that's wrong. And out of that comes all our suffering. So all these practices, the heart practice, devotion, insight, logical, whatever it is, it's all deconstructing this false reality we give to the world of appearances. It seems to be in appearance and perception. Take it for granted. It seems, of course, this is obviously real. So it takes a lot to deconstruct that, to open up that view. If one practices a while, it's possible that one will notice a pattern, because there are patterns here. There are patterns. A person has this or that experience in meditation, or outside of meditation, or whatever, Um, but they're, they're not random. They're not random. And I can basically just throw out like a law of consciousness right now, which is the more we let go in this moment, the more letting go there is, or the more love there is, or the more insight into emptiness there is, in the mind, in the heart, at any moment, at that time, to the degree that there's a letting go, insight into emptiness, love, etc., to that degree, the sense of self will be Diminished. It's that simple. The sense of separation will be diminished. The sense of oneness will be uh, more visible, more prominent, more, more obvious. Will, will rise. That's that perception of oneness. The sense of love too will, uh, sometimes it can go beyond love as well, but um, all that. In a way, basically, the more I let go in different ways, whatever they are, the more I love, the more I um, have insight into emptiness the more mystical becomes my perception. It's just like you do this. This is what happens. You get this perception. If I do the opposite, I get conventional perception. If I get really tight, you know what kind of perception you get. You kind of get a very solidified, tight, enclosed perception with a lot of separateness, a lot of sense of self, etc. Where am I on that scale? More of this, the more the perception opens up. Do you understand what I mean?
So one will see then, as, as that, if there is in that moment more letting go, etc., in whatever ways, through the practice we've been doing, through whatever, one will see the sense of self, the sense of things, the sense of others, the sense of the world, the sense of time also eventually, the sense of existence, etc. It will, it will not appear ordinary. It will not appear ordinary. Because we're not fabricating and supporting that ordinary perception. And this is, this is just a law. It's just how it goes. It's, the, it's, it's, a, it's what it's uh, understanding perception. And you can say, well, no, maybe something weird is going on in your brain when you meditate. There's some kind of chemical that makes things a bit funny. Um, but actually, again, really honest, all that's happening is we're clinging less with, with presence, with awareness. Clinging less, perception opens out, changes. And we can say, when wisdom, when love, when non-clinging are present, perception changes. It, it de-coagulates. Uh, and that seems and feels what we call mystical. We're not building such a solid, rigid reality in that moment. And then we come back, and then it goes again in different ways. So I need to understand the nature of perception. I need to understand something about perception something radical going on here. So there is, as I said, this spectrum of building, of fabricating. What am I fabricating? How much? The more I wrestle with experience, not let go, cling, aversion, identify, all the rest of it, uh, have certain beliefs, the more solid and, and built up is this fabrication. Um, and the more I let go of that, the more all that solidity and substantiality and separateness, it fades, it dissolves. I'm not constructing it. And this is going into the via negativa, this emptying out, because I'm not building it. And eventually it fades so much, in very deep meditation, that one is, what one's perceiving is beyond, it can no longer be contained by the conventional conceptual designations of words like now even, or then, or this, or that, or here, or space, or time, or me, or you, or anything. It goes, it goes beyond that. And then what's there? And there isn't a word for it. If in approaching this whole question of mysticism and what's real, I'm clinging to my concepts, my everyday concepts, that's limiting my investigation. So, well, which is more real then? This everyday or that one when I let go and things open up? Which is more real? What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> so, this one hurts if I stub my toe. <laughs> It hurts, but I also see somehow I'm fabricating it. It's very subtle. And I'm aware of putting out a lot and it's difficult to understand. Subtle ideas and and actually playing on a razor's edge here. And there's a real, I'm flirting with self-contradiction. As maybe one must, I don't know. Can you handle ten more minutes? And the Dharma says, and the Buddhist Dharma says, emptiness, this emptiness, this not existing independent of the way of looking, not existing independent of the mind, and the mind also not existing uh, by itself. This emptiness is the ultimate truth of all things. That's, that's basically what the Buddha was saying from, from day one. 
Emptiness is the ultimate truth of all things. Um, to me, that's a mystical understanding. If that isn't a mystical understanding, I, I don't know what is. Um, it's very mystical. Uh, and so, therefore, the Buddha was a mystic. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's true that he didn't support what he didn't support was um, a lot of mystical perceptions as as, um, the statements that this or that mystical perception was an ultimate truth there's again a subtle distinction here so perception of the Atman or the Brahman says that's not the ultimate truth because emptiness is the ultimate truth subtle but he said, famous words in, in Sarvam Idam Mayam, all this, all this, uh, all this world, everything is, is illusion, it means. Sarvam Idam Mayam, all, all this is illusion. And he talked about um, the, what's called the five aggregates, the, the body, the feelings, the perceptions, the, the thoughts and, and, the, and the emotions, and the consciousness also. He said they're all illusory, they're all empty, they all are lacking in substance, none of this. None of this. It's not a process of sort of mom- this real moment and this real feeling, and what only there's no self, but there's a, a real process. It's actually these ingredients of the process. There are no building blocks of a process, and there's no time in which it happens. When we say everything, everything is empty. Everything is empty. That includes this level, uh, what could we say, of the multiplicity of perspectives that I was talking about earlier. So you can look at it this way, you can look at it that way, and dependent on how I look, it will open up different things. Um, actually, look at this, I do have a Rumi quote. Um, it's not a poem. It's, we may worry about death, but what hurts the soul more is to live without tasting the water of its own essence. I read you completely the wrong thing. Scrap that. <laughs> that comes later. I was in the wrong program. Sorry. <laughs> it's been a long day. Um, multiplicity of perspectives. We said earlier. There's a, a concept from the, al- the medieval Western alchemical tradition, Gloria Duplex. It means that the glory of this contradictory ways of seeing. Gloria duplex, the double, see it from this angle, see it from that angle. Um, and Bohr, again, this physicist, he, he was, um, I guess, knighted in Denmark, where he was from. And so he, got, he said, they asked him, what do you want on your coat of arms? And he, he put the inscription, opposites are complementary. Opposites are complementary. Uh, in the, I think it was the late 60s, as, as one of, there was a, a theory in, a modern, in modern physics um, called the bootstrap theory. And it, uh, it was popular for a while. Then I think what happened is they ran into mathematical difficulties or something. I, I don't know exactly. And now recently I just found out it's come back into popularity. They figured some stuff out. That they'll explore it for a while and it'll go again and whatever. But the point is... Um, it's, pro- it's probably the closest to both this sense of emptiness in the Buddhist tradition, but also this sense of multiplicity of perspectives being completely valid. So one of the um, 
one of the leading uh, researchers into it was uh, a guy called Jeffrey Chu, and he said, a physicist who is able to view any number of different partially successful models of reality or uh, particles or whatever without frustration is automatically a bootstrapper. And this was coming up in terms of emotions as well in, in some of the groups today. And we could say, such and such happened to me when I was young and, and this pain lives in me and sometimes you know it's there sometimes i'm in contact with it sometimes i'm not sometimes it comes up sometimes it doesn't sometimes i'm pushing it away and in denial and that's a valid perspective this is something that happened this is a real feeling that exists already complete in me it's a valid perspective and there can be a lot of healing and and helpfulness come from that perspective but as we were talking this morning and as people were beginning to report, you also see that take away the aversion and where is this emotion? It doesn't constellate in the present, which means it doesn't exist as a thing in itself independent of me having some aversion in the moment or grasping or whatever it is. Do you understand? Both. Both. Can I hold both? Do I have this freedom and this breadth of view and this fluidity of perspective? Um, John Wheeler was, uh, worked several times in his life with Niels Bohr in Copenhagen at the, at the Bohr, what's called, what's called the Bohr Institute. It was a gathering place of, uh, and, and really a hothouse for very uh, uh, you know, at-the-edge uh, thinking and research in, in quantum, era, uh, quantum physics um, research. And he said, um, reporting on that time, that actually the central idea of the Bohr Institute was no progress without paradox. There's something about being able to see from different sides, and it applies to our emotions as much as it applies to everything else. So to be tolerant of this multiplicity of perspective doesn't mean to be lazy, to be tolerant. Seeing differently, employing different ways of looking, different perspectives, it does something to us. So when I look with less clinging, with more love, with more allowing, with uh, whatever it is, when I look differently, it does something to the being. And if I do that regularly, it does something very strong to the being. Very strong. I remember giving a talk years ago here, and afterwards a friend said to me, it, it touched on mystical experience a little bit in that talk, and she said to me, do you know, that she, she said, I don't know what the figures were exactly, she said, Apparently, 85% of people have had mystical experiences, so in some questionnaire or something. What was interesting was only 5% of that 85% wanted to repeat them, which I found really curious, and I was wondering, why is that? I, I don't know the answer, but I wonder if it's because, as I said, when we see differently, it, it does something to us, and it may come with a responsibility. Because if I see repeatedly my non-separateness, what's my responsibility then? If I see repeatedly that this things that I don't uh, that I take for granted is not quite real, what's my responsibility out of that? What does it imply for my life? Where does it issue? So complex and it's subtle but some understanding here is you could say is calling us it's calling us in life some movement of the understanding some deepening some opening of the understanding is calling us and is actually available to us 
This is the Rumi says, you know, we may worry about death, this is Rumi, we may worry about death, but what hurts the soul more is to live without tasting the water of its own essence. And again, one can hear that, and so quickly the inner critic comes in. Oh, but I haven't had maybe other people, and I hear in groups, and so it can be so painful. But I would also say, as I said before, it's not about experiences. It's not about experiences. We want to understand something about perception. And that's different. Someone, I don't know who this is, a lovely quote, I'm not sure who who said it. Um, The voyage of discovery, says, for the voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. The voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Proust. Proust, lovely, beautiful. Um, uh, Learning to see differently. Learning to see differently. Learning to have new eyes. And as I said right in the opening talk, that's what meditation is, I I would say, to me. Learning to have new eyes, and eyes to see in ways that free, to see in ways that open up things. So the understanding opens the eyes, but also the practices, through the, the practices that we're doing, are ways of seeing, ways of relating, ways of having new eyes. And they open, both the via negative and, and in some cases the via positiva. You can gradually, usually it's gradual, this kind of uh, opening understanding. Usually it's gradual, but it begins to get a sense. It's actually not even about via negativa or via positiva. It begins to get a sense of an understanding of the way things are and this emptiness that infuses, that infuses existence so that the presence of things, whether they're lovely or unlovely, it doesn't, it can't obscure, it can't obscure that. And the absence of things, it doesn't prevent its song. It's, in some senses, beyond things and experiences, and, in some senses, it's in and through things and experiences. There's something we can understand as human beings that brings freedom. Something that brings profound freedom. Profound, just a whole different sense of existence. And this sanctification, this, this bowing, deep bowing to life, to existence, to the well of life, the inexhaustible, infinite well of life. Shall we have some quiet time together then?